Good morning. Um, Let me invite you to open up to Acts chapter 27 with me this morning. And I apologize. Usually I have slides for you and and visuals and photos and all sorts of things. I had those ready and my computer blew up about an hour before service today. It won't turn on. So no slides. You'll have to actually use a printed Bible. (laughs) Imagine that. Um, But we are in the 27th chapter of Acts. And this morning, I've entitled this message, The Winds of Mission. The Winds of Mission. We have indeed been following the the mission of God in the the early church, and especially in the, the life of the Apostle Paul and his companions these past many weeks. And that is a a mission that has taken him around the the ancient world on a a number of circuits. And it's it's caused him to encounter a number of setbacks and difficulties and and things that were just unforeseen, unpredictable. But as we look at the 27th chapter of Acts again this morning, I want us to, to keep this in mind. This is sort of the big picture or takeaway. Whatever journey we're on, wherever God is navigating us in his mission, and we may also feel like things are a bit unpredictable right now, God is faithful to oversee that journey. God is present with us in that journey, and he is able to steer and direct and protect that mission accordingly because of who he is, not who we are. That sort of uh, image of God steering or directing or protecting uh, came came to me this past August when we were camping at Cranberry Lake. Uh, My wife's family has a a camp, a cabin, or a a cottage there, but we chose at the end of August to to go further south on the lake and to do a couple days of canoe camping in the the backcountry on this little island in the lake. We, I think, got there on a Thursday, and we decided Friday would be our day to explore the lake, you know, by canoe, to paddle around a little bit. But unfortunately, we picked a rather windy day to, to go canoeing. And we set out early that morning from our campsite, and we made our way one direction. It, the winds were, were too heavy. We turned around, we went a different direction on the lake, and went for a hike uh, up a small, uh, small trail. And later in the afternoon, we were paddling back to where we started, back to our campsite. We were kind of tired from a long day out. But I could, we, were, we were coming out of this smaller uh, river or, or uh, kind of inlet, and we were coming out to the major part of the lake again, and I could see our campsite was maybe a third or a half a mile away. And as I, I could see it, I was anxious to get back and to be done. And we were in two canoes. Katie had Josie at that time in the canoe behind me, and I had Eliza in the middle and Asher up front in my canoe. If you're a, an experienced canoer, if you're a smart paddler, one of the things you'll know, especially on big lakes like that, is the value of learning to read the winds. Right? If things are blowing, you want to know uh, which way the wind is blowing and adjust your course accordingly. Now, Katie and Josie, like I said, they're just behind us, and they did precisely that. They could see that that last half mile across the lake, there was a major crosswind blowing from from the west to the east that we would need to go into. So they decided to hug the shore of the lake 
and look to cross at the, the narrowest point with the wind at their backs. I had other plans in mind. I wanted to get back quickly, and I thought maybe we could show off a little bit, right, getting back to the campsite first. So I just decided we would beeline it across the lake, which meant we would be going directly into that crosswind. Things were fine for about the first 100, 200 yards out into the lake. And then I noticed what I thought was a, a mild breeze was generating these white caps that were starting to hit the left side of our canoe. And they started to get bigger. And I, so I said, Asher, okay, dig in on the right side. So we were both paddling as hard as we could on the right side of the canoe. But the canoe, that, usually that would spin your canoe in a circle. Instead, we were being blown to the right by this crosswind. And as the, the boat got further out, not only were we at risk of capsizing, but we were sort of being driven out further into the middle of the lake. The whole time, Katie and Josie are behind us, safely along the, the shoreline, praying for our safety. They were actually trying to hail a pontoon boat to go out and check on us to make sure we didn't, uh, didn't disappear. And I think they were probably also questioning my sanity in the process. <laughs> Eventually, Asher and I managed to turn the nose of that canoe you know, into the wind. We got around. We had some protection from, from the island we were trying to paddle to. And we just barely got, got the canoe turned around, and we made it back to the campsite 25, 30 minutes later. And when we got there, Katie and Josie got there right around the same time. And Katie and I sat down and had a long talk. And you can, you can guess how that might have gone. We talked about how to work with, with the current, with the wind, right, rather than to foolishly fight against it. As we go into the journeys, into the lives, into the missions God has placed before us as persons, as families, as a church body, we will encounter unexpected winds. Right? We don't get to sail or, or paddle or whatever the metaphor into God's mission on, on always calm waters. Right? Things are going to come up. Question is, how savvy are we at discerning the winds of God's mission? And where God is at, where his presence is at in those moments. Do we, like I did, try to just sort of muscle our way through and get through those things in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own hubris? Or are we willing to pause and reflect on where God's presence is, where the promises of God are, where the voice of God and the way of God might be leading us instead? How do we catch those winds of his mission with us? Let me pray for us as we open up to the Word of God this morning. Lord, you are gracious and good. Jesus, you've said that the gates of hell will never prevail against the kingdom you are establishing and the mission you have for your people. But we need to let you lead us. We need to take refuge in your strength. Lord, give us ears to hear your voice. Give us hearts to trust your promise. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach through this passage this morning, may the meditations of each heart be pleasing in your sight today. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So at the the start here of Acts 27, we'll pick up in verse 1. Remember, at the end of chapter 26 last week, Paul was on trial in Caesarea, and it was concluded, it was decided at the end of that trial that Paul must stand and testify before Caesar in Rome. And so now things are are underway, making preparations to go uh, from Caesarea in Palestine across the Mediterranean to Rome. Verse 1. I'm going to be sort of skipping over parts of this passage because of its length this morning. Verse 1, it says, When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. So they're, you know, on the, the coast of modern-day Israel near Tel Aviv. They, they set out, and they sort of hug the coastline there of, of Asia, Asia Minor. But they find that things are slow going. Uh, the winds make it difficult. They're not making progress very quickly. And eventually, the, the ship arrives on the Isle of Crete, uh, and they take refuge in the harbor of a place called Fair Haven. I'm going to pick up now in verse 9. Luke says, by now much time had been lost and the sailing had already become dangerous because now it was after the Day of Atonement. It was probably right around this time of year, mid to late October. So Paul warned them, man, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. There's a bit of foreshadowing here that maybe this isn't going to go so well for them. We've all probably heard what's often called the, the prayer of serenity, right? God grant me peace or serenity to accept the things in life I can't change, courage, to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, here for the Apostle Paul, he is largely presented with things out of his control, things he cannot change. And from the very first verse in chapter 27, it's clear that as a prisoner of the Roman guard, Paul is now subject routinely to choices that others will make on his behalf. Someone decides for Paul when he's going to sail to Rome. Someone gets to decide which ship he's going to take there. Someone else gets to decide the route that ship is going to take. It's not up to Paul. But imagine what that would have been like for the Apostle Paul. One scholar has estimated that even before this sea voyage begins, just in the, the, the voyages described in the book of Acts, Paul's probably spent three or 4,000 miles on the sea in the Mediterranean. Right? If, if they had awards programs back then for frequent travelers, right, Paul's like way up in the elite status at this point. He's a, an experienced veteran of sea travel. Paul's, Paul knows something about what's happening. And so in verse 10, Paul speaks up to the captain of the ship. Because he sees that their hubris and probably also their greed is driving their decisions. 
Luke tells us it's late in the fall. Basically, from November on into the rest of the winter, no one sailed the Mediterranean if they could help it. It was far too dangerous. So it's, it's coming close to that danger zone. But this ship that they've transferred to is a grain ship. And if they managed to get that grain back to Rome in a timely fashion, they would be compensated handsomely. So that the ship's captain, the owner, are eager to keep making progress. Paul warns them, right? He's got this experience. He says, hey, this isn't a good idea. This could cost us not only the ship but our lives. But instead, the the ship owner has the last word. And the journey must continue. How do we respond when our lives are at the mercy of others' decisions? Or at the mercy of forces that we have no control over? How do teenagers respond to their parents who set curfews for them or take away their smartphones, right? There's that tension of someone else getting to make decisions for us. How do we respond when our employers maybe set expectations that feel stifling or controlling or unfair? How do we respond to the forces of, of surprise or tragedy or even just kind of the inertia of our lives that cause us to feel stuck, right? To have things set beyond our control. Like Paul here, we we can feel captive to those decisions. And it's in those times that I think I am most prone to be discouraged, right? To feel angry, to feel anxiety about what's happening. And it's in those times where I'm least prone to think about the faithfulness and the strength and the power of God. I want control. But I want us to see what unfolds on the remainder of this journey. And how both the ship and the crew respond and also how Paul responds in in the midst of that journey. Verse 13 is where I'm picking up. So they're, they're there on Crete. It's decided they're going to continue the journey. Verse 13, when a gentle south wind began to blow, the ship's crew saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor And they sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and it could not head into the wind. The ships back then didn't have that technology to tack into the wind, so they were stuck. So, Luke says, we gave way to the wind and we were driven along goes on to say that as an act of desperation, they they tie ropes around the ship, trying to keep it from being broken apart. They throw the tackle of the ship overboard to lighten the load. But verse 20 finally says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Plans of everyone on the ship are blown away. Luke does a masterful job retelling this story. I kind of think Luke is, you know how people like to tell stories. I think he was excited to write this bit of the book of Acts. He gives it a huge chapter. 
And he casts it, you know, with the, the sort of flourishes of a, a narrative in the, the Greek world who loved sea voyages and journeys like this one. And he tells us that as they're harbored there safely on Crete, one day there's this gentle wind sort of luring the ship and its crew out off the coast. Right? This is going to go easy. We'll, we'll make good time. No problem. But he says, before very long, probably the same day or the next day, that gentle breeze gives way to a gale force wind. Likely there's a, there's a large peak on Crete, Mount Ida, and there's this wind that sweeps down off the south of the mountain and it, it causes the ship to be caught up in this uh, sea storm. And again, the ship at this point has no power to do anything about their, their direction. Right? They, they are driven south and west out into the wide open sea, further from shore. If you have a, I, had, I had maps ready to show us, but if you've got a Bible atlas or some maps in the back of your Bible, you might want to take a look at the Mediterranean Sea and where they're at. But at this point, they, they have to go wherever the wind takes them. Right? They take desperate measures to keep the ship together. But Luke confesses at this point in the journey, pretty much everyone on the ship has given up all hope of being rescued. That's not just a, a dramatic statement. If you look at a map of the Mediterranean, you'll see why Luke and his companions feel this way. Because between Crete you know, over on the eastern side of the Mediterranean and the southern tip of Italy to the west, you've got about six or seven hundred miles of open ocean, and there's basically nothing out there. Nothing to, to hope you might run into. No place to, to try to figure out how to navigate your ship for a rescue. What could possibly rescue them from this predicament? Now, not only is Paul, you know, beyond the, the forces of his own control, but the whole ship, the crew, the captain, everyone realizes that, that the illusion of control has disappeared from their lives. Right? They are purely powerless to change their circumstances. There's nothing they can do. One of the things I've, I've heard many of us express in our COVID-19 world is how this little microscopic virus has shattered our illusions that we are, in fact, in control of almost any area of our lives, right? We also feel powerless at this time. The Mayo Clinic on their website now describes symptoms of what they refer to as coronavirus grief, right? And, and what people are, are experiencing and they, they describe this condition as one triggered by the loss of a sense of safety, predictability, control, freedom, and security. Right? The, the mental health world is trying desperately to respond to the things we're all experiencing. And it's kind of like being stuck on a ship out at sea, right? There's so much we can't control. And if you can't do anything about it, it's a struggle to maintain hope in a period like this one. So where do we turn? 
Well, in the, the bleakness of a similar dilemma, this ship caught in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean in, an, in a relentless storm. Paul decides to risk standing up in front of the crew a second time. Remember the last time they weren't interested in what he had to say. But here he doesn't give them navigational advice, but he points them to the one hope they have remaining. He calls to mind the extravagant mercy of his God. Look with me at verse 21. I'm going to look at halfway through that verse. It says, Paul stood up on the ship in the midst of this storm and he said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. It's a little bit of the I told you so there, right? But verse 22, Now I urge you, Keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me, and he said this, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all those who sail with you. In the middle of a control-smashing storm, what does Paul say? He says, keep your courage. Have courage, Paul says, not not as sort of a statement of, of blind optimism... Paul's not just sort of exercising the power of positive thinking, keep your chin up kind of of stuff. In fact, for, for Paul to stand up at this point in the journey and to make this kind of promise is on one hand irrational. Right? It's crazy. Statistically, they have approaching 0% chance of survival. But that's not what Paul is interested in. He's not driven by statistics. He's not thinking about nautical strategy at this point. Paul knows that the fact that he's even still alive and boarded that ship in the first place is a statistical impossibility. Paul has defied the odds again and again. And he knows that's the case because what Paul puts his trust in is the word and the promise of his God The God, he says, to whom I belong, to whom my plans belong, to whom my body and my life and my hope belong. Paul knows the same God who came to him two plus years before this moment in a jail cell in Jerusalem as he was bound in chains without any hope of reaching Rome where he longed to testify for the gospel. And who comes to him but Jesus in that jail cell? It says Jesus stood near to Paul in that cell and said, Take courage, Paul. You will testify in Rome. And now, two years later, when everyone is despairing, they've given up hope, they're on a sinking ship in the middle of nowhere, Paul gets the same vision again. Angel of the Lord draws near to Paul. 
verses 23 and 24. And the angel says, do not be afraid. You must, not you will, you must stand trial before Caesar. And what's more, God has graciously given you the lives of every other soul on board this ship. Paul says to these hopeless men, on the basis of this word, on the basis of my God, on the basis of his promise to you, take courage. You will not be lost. Why? Because this ship has a mission to complete. And because the God I belong to is gracious and kind. He wants to know He wants you to know his saving power. If we feel stripped of the power to direct our paths right now, if your spirit is tired or flagging, if if everything sort of feels upended, and it feels that way a lot right now, we're, we're sort of as a church, I think, holding our plans before the Lord, saying, how do we meet together on a Sunday morning? What do we do when the winter comes? How do we protect the safety of our families? How do we take kids to school? What do we do in our workplaces? If we are discouraged, then let the vision Paul receives here be one that speaks to our situation. Know that in the midst of this storm, the presence of Jesus remains with you. The mission of Jesus through you cannot be impeded. Because our God is faithful and because our God is gracious, we can receive generously. We can receive courage and faith. I want to read together with you the conclusion here to chapter 27 and see how the power of God is at work. Verse 27, on the 14th night... While we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They end up taking some depth soundings. They discover that land is getting closer. Verse 33. Just before dawn, though, Paul urged them all to eat. He said, for the last 14 days you have been in constant Suspense. What's going to happen? And so you have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread. He gave thanks to God in front of them all. And then he broke it and he began to eat. They were all encouraged, and they ate some food themselves. All together, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. I think this is a profound moment of worship and trust. By some nautical miracle, 
after two weeks in the middle of a storm that has not relented, says, at the dark of midnight, suddenly the sailors sense land is approaching. They sense that somehow the promise Paul has made them may actually be coming good. Their anchors are beginning to find the bottom of the ocean at last. But look what Paul does. He gathers the crew of the ship together. Before the sun rises, before the next day comes and they have to make decisions about how to proceed. It's almost like Paul gathers them for like a breakfast devotional here. It's like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. Right? Everyone is full of seasickness and anxiety and the fear of starvation. And so it says, for days no one has eaten anything. In verse 34, though, Paul says, it's time for us to eat together, to regain our strength. And I think Paul is, is indicating that that act of eating is an expression of hope and trust in the promise God has given them, the promise to deliver them that next day. And there are probably plenty of people on that ship that don't understand Paul's God. They don't know the gospel in detail. But he's inviting them to take a step. To, to receive this food as an act of faith. And says, so he took some bread. And he lifted it to God and gave thanks for that bread. And he broke it and he began to eat it. And then all 276 on board followed suit. And they ate as much as their hunger allowed. It's interesting, I don't know quite what the connection is, but the way Luke tells this story, it sounds an awful lot like the way he tells the feeding miracles of Jesus back in his gospel. I think he senses that the God was graciously at work and feeding and saving and encouraging his people in this way. It says they ate as much as they could, and then as both an act of faith that they would be rescued, and also to lighten the ship as it runs aground, they dump the rest of the grain into the sea. I think this moment must have stayed with Luke for the rest of his life. Right? While he was in the darkness of that voyage, while he was still exhausted, while he still couldn't even see the prospect of land before him, in the middle of that midnight, Paul calls them to worship. Paul calls them to express gratitude to God for preserving their life. He calls them to express hope in the saving power of his God that is to come. And that's something I think we need to do right now ourselves. Right? We also need to exercise our ability to hope in the midst of darkness. To give thanks for what God has supplied us in this present moment. As an act of faith and trust that, that God's deliverance remains before us. God's fruitfulness remains before us. God's mission remains before us. He will lead us forward. It says, at dawn, right, the sun rose and the ship's crew saw a beach ahead on the horizon for the first time. 
and they cut loose the anchors of the ship, they hoist the foresail, and the ship gradually begins to blow toward land. And a little ways out, it says, the ship runs aground on a, a piece of rock or some kind of sandbar. And so those who can swim, they begin to swim for the island. Those who can't grab pieces of the ship, and they float to safety. Luke tells us at the end of chapter 27, every single person was saved. And then at the first verse of chapter 28, he says they go on to this island and discover they have reached the island of Malta. Again, if you don't have a map in your Bible, let me encourage you to go home and dig out an atlas Finding the Isle of Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean is like the needle in the middle of the haystack. This is like the only place that ship could possibly have safely run aground. And no one navigated them there. They didn't have the sail up for most of this journey. It was the wind of God's mercy. It was the winds of God's mission. It was the wind of God's salvation that led them to this place. God made good on his promise. He steered the ship and he steers his people today. Let's pray together. Lord, you delight in calling us together to be with you in mission, to see where you've gone before us, to guide us even through seasons of great setback and hardship. Lord, may you strip us of the illusion of our control so that we might listen for your presence and your promises instead. We offer you our lives. We offer you this church. We offer you our desire to be with you in mission this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.